Amen. Thank you, Mary Alice. Thank you. That was beautiful. Thank you, Pastor Jason, all the singing musicians and, and uh, singers. Thank you so much. Beautiful, beautiful. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. We're going to finish today looking at Jesus' sermon in chapter 6, the sermon on I am the bread of life. You know, John writes in his mid-90s maybe, and uh, it's been about 60 plus years, 65 years since the cross and the resurrection. And uh, John looks back and writes this gospel, and of course inspired, moved along by the Holy Spirit. And about 90% of his gospel is, um, is original to his gospel. In other words, it's not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And this is one of those sermons, not recorded by anyone else, recorded only by John. And uh, it is, and John does that, records several of Jesus' sermons that no one else records. This is one of them. And it's a beautiful, beautiful sermon. It comes out, if you remember, it comes right after the feeding of the 5,000, 5,000 men, maybe 10,000 altogether, the feeding of the 5,000 with, you know, the little loaves and two fish. And, and then Jesus walked on the water. And then on the shores of Capernaum, people approach him. He begins to preach to them. And somewhere along the way in this chapter, they travel to the synagogue in Capernaum. And that's where he ends his sermon. And so we pick it up in about the middle today. So if you would, look at verse uh, 51. Jesus said, I am the living bread which cometh down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove together. The word strove is a strong word. It means they argued in an angry way. They strove among themselves saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Pray with me, please. Father, thank you for our time together today. Make it profitable for each of us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Raymond Edmund was in World War I. He was only 18 years old and was shipped over to Europe to fight. He writes about that. He writes, during my soldiering days in World War I, in 1918, my outfit was the 1st Division. And along with other American units, we moved eastward across the remainder of France into Luxembourg and Belgium, into the Rhineland of Germany. Those were days of long marches in rain, mud, and snow. The food supplies ran short. By the time we crossed the Ryan River into the rugged hillside, I was utterly exhausted and sick. We finally reached our destination, which was a ramshackled, unheated building that had been uh, a prison for, Roman, uh, for Russian prisoners. 
The weather turned bitterly cold, the snow was deep, and as miserable as our quarters were, we were glad to return to them at the end of each day's maneuvers. But one noon, just before Christmas, a runner came from headquarters, and the first sergeant said he had to transfer five men to Company C. We were with Company B. None of us knew where Company C was located. And none of us wanted to find out. He continues, he says, I tried to be inconspicuous, but the sergeant barked out my name. Edmund, you're in charge of this detail. Four other men then were assigned to me, and the orders were to go at once. While the others began to roll their few belongings into their packs, I slipped into an adjacent room, just a tiny little place that had been a sort of a tavern when it was used by the, uh, by the Russians. There alone, I knelt by one of the benches to pray. And I said, now here's his words written by, by himself. He says, Lord, I cannot go. I am so sick. I'm so worn. With such a sore throat and fever. I cannot go. And I don't know how far away Company C is stationed. Then he writes, Then for the first time in my Christian life, as a young believer in the Lord Jesus, I was aware of a presence, capital P. I was aware of a presence beside me, nothing I could see with outer eye or touch with hand, and yet I knew he was there. And then he said to me, I will go with you. Edmund then writes, I rose with the strength and indefinable calmness that had come from that presence. I shouldered my pack, took my little detail, got my directions to Company C from the Sergeant Major, and all that afternoon we trudged onward through deep snow. By nightfall we were in the village of Bowdoin but not in a barracks, but in a home. Not a converted prison, but a home. The good mother in the home noticed that I was sick. Remember, he's only 18 years old. The good mother of the home noticed that I was sick and insisted that I sleep in a feather bed upstairs rather than the unheated room assigned to the soldiers. He said, that night, I had a feather bed and a mother's care, and most of all, the inward assurance that the Lord Jesus was with me. God wants us to have more than just salvation, just saved and on my way to heaven, as wonderful as that is, as glorious as that is. He wants us to experience His presence 
right here and right now and draw from that presence the strength, the joy, the peace that we need in all the circumstances of life. Edmund would later become a missionary after that president of Wheaton College a dear friend of Billy Graham an advisor to Billy Graham and on his board he would write many books one book was entitled they found the secret the secret of this living in this presence that he just described for us and he gave a lot of short biopsies, testimonies from God's people over the years. It's called by different names. For instance, Hudson Taylor called it the exchange life. We ex exchange our life for his life and his for ours. Oswald Chambers called it the highest life. Andrew Murray called it the abiding life. And Charles Trumbull called it the victorious life. But I like the term Jesus used the most. He called it the abundant life. In John 10, 10, Jesus said, I've come that you might have life. That's salvation, spiritual life, eternal life. I come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. He called it abundant life. Instead of a little joy or a little peace or a little strength, we got abundant strength and joy and peace in the troubled times of life living in his presence so in chapter 6 in really just in two verses and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention and talk about those at the close today and uh, two verses we get a glimpse into this abundant life and then Jesus is going to expound on it in chapter 15 and he's going to paint us a beautiful picture of this life the vine and the branches and uh, we'll look We'll look at it in detail when we get to that portion of Scripture. Now let's go back to our uh, let's go back to our text. There's a lot of things in verse 51. That's where we ended. I'm just going to take a few minutes here in verse 51. Notice the phrase uh, "will live forever." Five times in this one sermon, Jesus says, "Those who believe, those who." Uh, eat the bread of life, which is a metaphor for believing on the Lord Jesus. They that eat the bread of life shall live forever or have everlasting life. Five times he uses that frame uh, phrase. Also in verse 51, he says, He's the living bread which cometh down from heaven. Seven times in this one sermon, Jesus said he came down from heaven. If you remember last week, that was one of the things the... Uh, Jewish people did not like about this sermon. And, uh, and then he used the term living bread. Look at verse 51 again. I am the living bread. He speaks of this bread, of course, which is the main subject of the sermon. In this sermon, he calls himself the true bread, verse 32. The bread of God, verse 33. Then he says, I am the bread of life, two different times in verse 35 and in verse uh, 48. And then he says in verse 51, I am the living bread. 
And so Jesus uses these phrases to describe himself as the bread of life and that which gives eternal life. Two key verses, if you look back at verse 47, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Has, present tense, right now, if you believe on Jesus, you have everlasting life. Then he makes the proclamation, I am the bread of life. So look quickly with me now at... uh, at your screen. Let me just remind you of this major uh, themes of this sermon. I am the bread of life sermon. Jesus uh, talks about eating the bread of life, which means believing. And, uh, and, and when you do, you receive eternal life. That's salvation. Remember, nine times the word eat is used in regard to the bread of life. And nine times Jesus says, believe on him and you will have everlasting life. And so, Believing and eating the bread is the same thing. Eating the bread is given in metaphorical terms. But then in these two verses that I'm going to close with today, it says, if we eat continually the bread of life, that is, we keep on believing, we keep living in that presence that Edmund talked about, then uh, uh, for, for ongoing spiritual life, that's sanctification. That's Him changing us, making us like Christ and progressing in our Christian faith and growing in grace and so forth. Now, with that said, come back now to verse 52 and how they responded. The Jews therefore strove. They argued in an angry way among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh? Well, Jesus did not back up at all because they were angry and misunderstood. The fact is, he elaborated on it with words that were even more offensive to them. Look at, the, uh, look at verse 53. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, this is of great importance, I say unto you, except a man eat the flesh of the Son of, of uh, Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now again, he said he would give his life in verse uh, 51. That is, he would give his life on the cross. And... Uh, and the, the metaphor of eating this bread now is eating the Lord's flesh and drinking His blood. That means we are believing on Him as our Savior and what He did on the cross for uh, our justification. And, uh, and, and so he says, he just reiterates it in stronger terms. Look at verse 54. Uh, Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life. Right this moment, if you eat of that bread, his flesh and blood, you have eternal life. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. That's the physical resurrection, bodily resurrection. For my flesh is meat indeed, that is food. My flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed, or genuine, true drink As we eat and drink physical food to give us physical strength, he's saying here, when we trust him as Savior, that's taking him in for our spiritual life, to be redeemed, forgiven, and given eternal life. Verse 56, He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the Father 
As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your father did eat manna, and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. <laughs> wow. Some scholars interpret this verses we just read as referring to communion or the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, because he talks about his flesh and his, and his blood, and he talks about taking it in. I do not think that's the case. Not only that, I think it is very dangerous to see it this way. There's many reasons. There's two really significant reasons. If you look back at your screen for a moment, let me give you those two significant reasons. Jesus' reference here to eating and drinking was not a reference uh, to the ordinance of communion for two significant reasons. One, communion has not yet been established. It's going to be established one year later. No one even knew what communion was. And he's speaking here, uh, half of the people are lost. He wouldn't be teaching lost people about communion. Uh, he hadn't even taught his disciples yet. So one thing was it hadn't been instituted yet. But secondly, and even a stronger uh, uh, reason, if Jesus was referring to communion, then the passage would teach that anyone partaking of communion would receive eternal life. And we just read it several times in, the, in our text. If you eat this bread, you have eternal life. If you eat my flesh and my blood, you have eternal life. Well, we know that's not the case historically, because uh, Judas took communion the night Jesus established communion, the night before his cross. And Judas took it, and Jesus is going to say, even in this passage, J Judas was a devil. And the Bible would say when he died, he went to his own place. Not to heaven, not to God's place. He went to his own place as a devil. He took communion. He didn't have eternal life. The thief on the cross didn't take communion. But Jesus said to him, Today you're going to be with me in paradise. And then it would contradict hundreds of passages in the Bible that says believing is the only condition for salvation. Now repentance is within the believing. You were not believing one moment. Now you are believing. You've turned things around. That's repentance. And uh, receiving the Lord is just a different phrase for believing. But we're told over and over again, even in this passage, nine different times we're told believing is the way you receive eternal life in this one sermon. So it's not talking about communion. If you see it as communion, you're missing the metaphor. You're, you're missing the symbolism uh, that the body is the bread and the flesh and the blood. That's the person of Christ himself. Receive that person. And of course, the eating represents believing. Well, let's pick it back up now in verse 59. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they had heard this said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Who can take it in? Who can live it? We, we don't understand. This is a hard thing. 
Then when Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? He knew in himself, again we see here the, uh, the sovereignty of Christ. He knew in himself what people were thinking around him. He knows what you and I are thinking right now. And every day, every minute. He knew what they were thinking. And he said, does this offend you? Does this cause you to stumble? Is this going to cause you to turn away? Does this offend you? And then he says, uh, what and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? They've seen all of these miracles. And yet they won't believe. Jesus said, what if I ascended back up to heaven and you saw me ascend back up to heaven? Would that do it for you? Well, it wouldn't. That's his point. You wouldn't believe me if you saw me ascend back up to heaven. You'd have some way to, to water it down or justify it or some reason not to believe it. Then he says, it is the spirit that quickeneth. The word quicken means make, makes alive. It is the spirit that makes alive. Uh, the word spirit in the King James is not capitalized. In the New King James, it is capitalized. And uh, referring then to the Holy Spirit. Now, again, I just remind you of this so you understand capitalization. In the, in the Greek text, there was no, cap, no capital letters. Uh, there was no distinction. They were all caps to start with, but there's no distinction. So the translators have to put in the capitals, uh, letters. So if, if it's obvious it's referring to the Holy Spirit, then they'll put an S. I mean, capital S. If it's not obvious, they don't know which way to go, they'll leave it small. So the person reading it will have to interpret it themselves. In this case, the King James uh, writers and uh, translators left it small. But the New King James is a capital, and all the newer translations are capitals. Scholars believing this is referring to the Holy Spirit and not to the Spirit of man. And uh, I think that's correct. It is the Spirit, therefore it's the Holy Spirit that makes alive. The flesh profiteth nothing. The flesh in this context represents all that man is, all that man can do. The best that man can do in his own strength profits nothing. The Holy Spirit has to quicken and make alive. And then he says, the words that I speak unto you are spirit, and they are life. But there, was, there are some of you that believe not. In spite of all the miracles you've seen, you still do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were which believed not and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come to me except it were given unto him of my Father. As I said last week, God is so sovereign that he chose in his sovereignty to give man a choice. But man can't choose unless God the Father draws him and the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit uh, convicts him. When that takes place, then a man can, can say yes or he can say no. And, uh, and when he says yes, then the Holy Spirit quickens him and makes him alive spiritually. Verse 66, from the time, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Sometimes the word disciple is used to describe the twelve. 
This is not the case here because we see the contrast in just a moment. But sometimes it's used to describe any follower. And, and by the way, it was used, it was used of other people. Uh, some of the rabbis, they had, they had disciples. They were followers. They would follow and listen to certain rabbis or certain spiritual leaders. And so in the, in the common language of the New Testament, disciple means, simply means a follower. So these, Jesus was having many followers at this time. If you remember, this is the pinnacle of his popularity in Galilee. And so many of those now turn away. Look at it again. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then Jesus said unto the twelve, that's the apostles now, that's the twelve disciples, which are also apostles. Will you also go? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. What a great profession of faith Peter makes here in the midst of this tense tense situation with disciples leaving Peter says not us not us because you've got the words of eternal life you are the Christ the Holy One of God notice that Peter included all the twelve he was including Judas now Judas was not a true believer we know but Peter didn't know that. I'm just pointing this out to let you know Judas was such a deceiver that even Peter didn't know. Peter said, all of us know and all of us are sure that you are the Christ and the Holy One of God. And, uh, and you have the words of eternal life. And verse 49 and 69 says, And we believe, again, he's including Judas in this believing, and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? Now some people, every time you see the word chosen, they try to make it something to do with Calvinism. Jesus had not chosen them in, in this sense. He had not chosen them to salvation. He had chosen them to service, to be his twelve. If he, and many people will say right here, this proves that God chooses who gets saved. Actually, it cannot prove that. It can only disprove it because he said, I've chosen the twelve. And one of you is the devil. So if he had chosen... Judas, in the sense of salvation, Judas wouldn't have been a traitor and he wouldn't be a devil. And he wouldn't have died gone to his own place. So this choosing simply meant he chose them as his apostles, as his, as his disciples, as his twelve. And one of them was a devil. He spoke of Judas Issachariot, verse 71, the son of Simon. For he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. Now, I want to go back quickly to verse... 57, 56. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and, 
and I in him. The word dwelleth there is the Greek word meno. And it's, it's the word Jesus uses in John 15 when he says the, the branches abide in the vine. And he said, if you abide in me and I in you, you shall bear much fruit. You'll have fruit, more fruit, much fruit. And he also says you'll have joy uh, from this abiding experience. It's the same word. Uh, abide in me and I in him. The verb tenses, eat, uh, and dwelleth, abiding, are in the present tense. It means an ongoing thing. Now, keep that in mind. We'll come down to verse 57. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by him. I live because of him. I live by him. I live in communion with him. I live by the Father. So he that eateth me shall live by me. He shall live because of me. He shall live in communion with me. He shall, that is, if you eateth. Again, present tense. That is, you continually eat of the bread of life. Now, in, for instance, look at verse 51 again. If any man eat, about halfway through. That's the aorist tense. And again, in 53. In 53. I say unto you, except a man eat my flesh and drink my blood, eat and drink are both in the aorist tense. The aorist tense in the Greek means something that has been done in the past that has present results. In other words, in the, if it, when it refers to salvation, you and I got, we ate that bread on January the 20th, you know, 1972 or whatever. It was, a, it was a time in the past, but it has present results because we're still saved and we're in the family of God and so forth. But it was a past act with present results. He changes tenses when he gets to these two verses. That's where we see just a little glimpse of this abundant life because now he says, <coughs> if you continually eat the bread of life, then you're abiding in me and I in you and you can live in a connection and relationship with me like I live in a relationship to the Father right now. Look at your screen for a moment. Again, this is a little glimpse of this great truth. Here's the way the Amplified puts it. He who feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood dwells continually. Or that, again, that word dwell could be translated abide, which is uh, the exact same Greek word used in John 15. Dwells continually in me, and I, uh, in like manner, dwell continually in him. The Amplified, of course, amplifies the uh, meaning of New Testament words and uses their tenses sometimes to, to point out certain truths and you can see it in this verse just as the living uh, Father sent me and I live by through because of the Father even so whosoever continues to feed so this is not a one time believing on Jesus for salvation this is a continual feeding on the Lord Jesus whoever continues to feed on me whoever uh, takes me for his food and is nourished by me. That's what happened to Edmund in Germany. In the snow and in the cold. He drew his strength from that presence of Christ. And then he says, if you do that, you shall in, 
his turn live through and because of me. That is, you'll be related to me the way I'm related to the Father. Now think about that. That's pretty glorious. How was Jesus related to the Father? And again, I've got to quickly move through this. Jesus' relationship to the Father as explained in chapter 5, that was, if you remember, six months earlier down in Judea in Jerusalem where Jesus gave this sermon. And uh, in these three, just in these three verses, I, took, I chose those verses because we recently went over them together. We see Jesus' relationship to the Father. One, it was absolute surrender. Jesus said, I come not to do the, my own will, but to do the will of my Father who sent me. And then it was continual communion. They were communing together continually. Jesus said, I do what I see the Father do. I do what I, I say, what I hear the Father say. They were in total communion every moment of every day. And then there was total dependence. Jesus said, of my own self, I do nothing. He said that twice in these three verses. Jesus was dependent upon the Father, and the Father, there was a codependency. The Father was dependent upon Jesus, and they, were they did everything together. Jesus did nothing outside of the will and purpose of God the Father. So there was total dependence, that is trusting, receiving. Jesus received from the Father what he needed as man. By the way, I don't have time for this. I might say it quick. And that is, when Jesus in his humanity never laid aside his deity... And he never laid aside his glory. He, he was always who he was. But he robed his glory in our humanity so it couldn't be seen with a human eye. And he chose not to exercise those attributes of his deity that were in opposition to his humanity. But he was always who he had always been. Total dependence. And then one more, and that is loving obedience. He said, I do what the Father says. That's my food. Remember in chapter 4, he said, that's my food. That's, that's the food of my life. That's what nourishes me. I do what the Father says. But it's loving obedience. It's not, oh, I wish I didn't have to do this, but I guess I ought to. I guess I have to. It's, it's loving obedience. Now, with that said about Jesus' relationship to the Father, think about verse 57. We just read it. Jesus said... As I'm related to the Father, so if you will learn to keep feasting on me, or that is feeding on me and being nourished by me, then you'll live by me the way I live by the Father. And so our attitude and our relationship to the Lord Jesus should be characterized by these four things. Absolute surrender. Not my will, Lord Jesus, but yours be done. Continual communion, fellowshipping with Him through the day, all the time. Total dependence, trusting Him, knowing, confessing our own inability and our own lack of strength and trusting Him for His strength, receiving that strength from Him by faith. And then loving obedience. And we don't do things because we have to and we hate to do it. We do it because we love Jesus. Loving obedience. Now, one more screen on this thought. That is, finding, learning, and living this abundant life that Jesus talked about. Remember, Jesus said, I come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly, abundant life. And uh, first of all, along the way, we discover our own nothingness. 
Remember in John 15, Jesus said, Without me, you can do nothing. Well, you can do nothing of spiritual value, nothing towards bearing fruit of Christ's likeness. And uh, so, and sometimes these things come in a way of a crisis, like it did with Edmund. That was a crisis in his life. He couldn't go a step further. And in that crisis, the Lord Jesus met him in a, in a beautiful and wonderful experience. And, uh, and uh, he went forward in the Lord's strength. So we discover our own nothingness along the way. And then we encounter his sufficiency. I can do all things through Christ. Without the Lord Jesus, I can do nothing. But with him, I can do all things. And then we begin to experience an ongoing abiding, an ongoing attitude of Total surrender, continual communion, absolute dependence, and loving obedience. With that attitude, then his life begins to flow through us. And we don't have to act like we, we're strong. We'll have his strength. We don't have to act like we're happy. The Christian life is not a, a life of acting I act like I have joy. I act like I have peace. You don't have to act like it. If, you're, if you abide in Him and you're walking in His presence, then He'll manifest those things. You'll have real joy and real peace and real strength. <coughs> and so He gives us this little glimpse into the abundant life. It's a journey of faith, isn't it? It truly is. Now, I have a little video of Jesus and this chapter and we'll see Jesus finish his second half of his of his sermon and so it, it may have looked something like this let's play that I am the bread of life your ancestors ate manna in the desert but they died but the bread that comes down from heaven is of such a kind that whoever eats it will not die I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If you eat this bread, you will live forever. The bread that I will give you is my flesh, which I give so that the world may live. This started an angry argument among them. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? I am telling you the truth. If you do not eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will not have life in yourselves. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life. And I will raise them to life on the last day. For my flesh is the real food, my blood is the real drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood live in me. And I live in them. The living Father sent me. And because of him, I live also. In the same way, whoever eats me will live because of me. This, then, is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the bread that your ancestors ate but then later died. Those who eat this bread will live forever. Jesus said this as he taught in the synagogue in Capernaum. Many of his followers heard this and said, This teaching is too hard. Who can listen to it? Without being told, Jesus knew that they were grumbling about this. Does this make you want to give up? 
Suppose then, that you should see the Son of Man go back up to the place where he was before. What gives life is God's spirit. Human power is of no use at all. The words I have spoken to you bring God's life-giving spirit. Yet some of you do not believe. Jesus knew from the very beginning who were the ones that would not believe and which one would betray him. This is the very reason I told you that no people can come to me unless the Father makes it possible for them to do so. Because of this, many of Jesus' followers turned back and would not go with him anymore. And you? Would you also like to leave? Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. And now we believe and know that you are the Holy One. I chose the twelve of you, didn't I? Yet one of you is a devil. He was talking about Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For Judas, even though he was one of the twelve disciples, was going to betray him. Have you received this bread of life? Have you believed on the Lord Jesus? Have you rested your faith on Christ and Christ alone? You can do that today. Here's another great promise. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In that context, we're told believing brings salvation. But then we're told calling is an avenue for which we express that faith. I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer. And if you really mean it, then pray this prayer with me. And if you really mean it, the promise is if you call on the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. Not maybe, not perhaps. You shall be as you believe on Him. Pray this prayer with me. Say, Dear Lord Jesus, I know I have sinned. And I'm a sinner. And I need forgiveness. And I believe that you died on the cross for me. And rose again from the dead. And right now, I call on you to come into my heart and forgive my sin. Make me a child of God. Give me eternal life like you promised. Give me a home in heaven. Help me to live for you. And help me to learn to live in your presence and find your strength and peace and joy in all of life. Thank you for coming into my heart as you promised you would do. Now, if you prayed this prayer with me today, I want you to claim God's promise. He said, if you open the door, I will come in. He said, if you call on me, you shall be saved. He said, if you believe on me, you already have eternal life. Claim that promise. And then we'd like to pray for you. So send us uh, something in the mail, or you can call myself or one of the staff. You can leave a message here at the... Uh, at the church we'll get back with you if we can help you in any way we would love to help you maybe send you some literature if you'd like that to help you with your Christian life thank you so much